hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to our daily devotional for June the 29th. If you recall, our daily devotionals are divided into two distinct segments. We have our Through the Bible in One Year segment, and we have our Verse of the Day segment. God's 
children and those people will be those of us <coughs> who are not Jewish by birth. So this theme of provocation is very prominent in Romans chapter 11. So we're going to talk in great detail about that when we get into the book of Romans. So just be patient because we are going to be starting the book of Acts as soon as we're done going through the book of John. And then after Acts, we're going to move into the book of Romans and we're going to walk Romans very much like we did. We're doing the book of John, like we're going to do the book of Acts. So we're going to walk through it just like we have been doing. So the first Isaiah quotation in Romans 10, 20, which is the one that says, um, their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world, right? Which is from Isaiah 65, one is like the quote of Hosea 2, 3, in Romans 9, 25, where Hosea puts Israel in the position of the Gentiles, not God's people, not those who were not Jewish by birth, those who were foreigners, so Gentiles. So Isaiah similarly says that Israel's election was purely based on God's initiative and his revelation. So what do we mean by that? What do we talk about? This? So while the Jewish people were effectively a Gentile nation, when God first addressed them, they responded to him. But now and over the course of the history of their history, they have been rebellious. Which you see, God would use the rebelliousness of the people of Israel, in other words, his chosen people, to make a way for all those who are not Jewish by birth to be adopted into God's family. And that is, in that way, is by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and thereby making Him Lord of our lives, which is what Paul is writing about here. So your Bible readings for June 29th are Second Kings. Chapters 15 through 16, Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 41, Psalm 147, 1 through 20, and Proverbs chapter 18, verses 4 through 5. <clears throat> so that concludes our verse of the day for June the 29th. Now we're going to come to our the Bible in One Year segment for June the 29th, which is day 181 of this segment, not day 178, as I have mistaken.
you can get caught up by visiting upstatechristian.com. Again, that is upstatechristian.com. So, our focus for day 179, or excuse me, 180, excuse me, day 180. Is going to be on John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. So, if you recall, we said there are four major events that are described in John chapter 20. So, the first major event is Mary Magdalene discovering the empty tomb, and Peter and John going to the empty tomb and confirming her discovery confirming her findings. The second major event is Mary Magdalene encountering the risen Jesus while she is waiting at the tomb to find out what has happened to him. And then the third major event is Jesus appearing to his disciples in the upper room when Thomas was absent from the group. And the fourth major event and final major event is Jesus appearing a week later to the disciples with Thomas present. So we dealt with the first two events yesterday. So we dealt with Magdalene discovering the empty tomb and Peter and John going to the empty tomb and confirming this finding. And we also dealt with Mary Magdalene's encounter with the risen Jesus immediately following these events. And so we're going to be, and so today we're going to be dealing with the last two events, which is Jesus appearing to his disciples without Thomas being present while they are in the upper room. And Jesus then appearing to his disciples with Thomas present while they are in the upper room. Again, about a week later. So now we're going to pick up in verse 19 of chapter 20 and go through verse 23 at first. So here's what this section says. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. <clears throat> After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So what we see here is later that same evening, right, so later of that evening on Resurrection Sunday, what we, will now, what we would now call Easter Sunday, right, Jesus appears 
to his disciples and was sent out the door. They had locked the doors because they feared the Jewish leadership. We see that Jesus greets them, <coughs> the normal Hebrew greeting of peace. In other words, Jesus comes and gives them the expected normal Hebrew greeting of shalom, which means peace. So, sure, also surely Jesus meant more quiet than a simple greeting. For you see, he said it twice. He said it when he first met them. And then it's recorded, he says, uh, it says again, peace be with you. Right? So Jesus identified himself to his disciples by showing them the scars that he had from being crucified, from this violent and bloody death that he had had. And you see, the only scars that are ever gonna be in heaven are gonna be the scars on the hands and the feet and the side of Jesus as proof that he is who he says he is. He shows them this to prove that, hey, it is me. It is not some imposter. It is not some ghost. It is not some whatever. I'm not a charlatan who's just decided to pop in. I'm not some charlatan that stayed on the cross for a little while and then paid somebody to pull me off, which is what people will claim by showing them the scars that he had from the crucifixion. He then proved to these men that he was who he this was the same man they had walked the earth with for three years. <clears throat> so their joy fulfilled, so his disciples' joy fulfilled his Jesus' earlier prophecy spoken in the upper room. And what we see here is that Jesus repeated his Hebrew greeting. He greeted them again. He says, Shalom to them again, which is basically peace be with you, or have peace, or be peaceful. He repeated this greeting a second time to calm their hearts, showing them his scars. Because now the disciples probably think, well, if he's got the scars from the crucifixion, and we know he was put in that tomb, we know that he was dead, this must be a ghost that we see. Then Jesus says, peace to him, peace be with you. As my father sent you, I am sending you. So he tells them this so that they'll have peace. So they'll quit thinking that he's some sort of ghost. Right? So he then goes on to commission them and equip them for worldwide evangelism, worldwide evangelization. Right? So he's breathing on his disciples for shattered the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? The coming of the Spirit, their baptism in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So we're going to talk about this a little bit later. So we're going to talk about this. We're going to finish this little brief discussion here, and then we're going to dig real deep here into what happened when Jesus breathed on his disciples. Right. So that's the very next thing that happened. Because you 
as he has proclaimed the disciples from shadow the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And you see, God's people need God's Spirit to accomplish God's work. So on the basis of the gift of the Spirit that they receive now, and they're going to receive in measure on the day of Pentecost, and we get to Acts, we're going to talk about this in so much detail. I'm going to know more about this than you probably ever wanted to know, but you got to stick with me for a little while. So on the basis of this gift of the Spirit, the Spirit-filled church will pronounce forgiveness of sins, or the retaining of sins, based on a person's response to the gospel. So what exactly were we talking about when Jesus gave the Holy Spirit, right? So when Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to his disciples on the day he rose from the dead, he was not baptizing them in the Spirit as they would experience later on the day of Pentecost. Rather, it was the first time the disciples actually received the spiritually renewing presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And you see, that Spirit would now live within his disciples. You see, the inner peace of the Holy Spirit is part of the life that all Christ's followers now receive at the time they accept Christ's forgiveness and they surrender their lives to Him. So what we need to understand about this is that during Jesus' last message to His disciples, so that's right before His arrest, trial, and crucifixion, right? So that's part of his discredible discourse that we spent days talking about, right? Actually, we spent weeks talking about it. He promised his disciples that they would receive the Holy Spirit as the one who would regenerate them, in other words, the one that would renew them spiritually. So we'll see that, right, in John 14, 17, which says he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus fulfilled that promise was when he was with them following his resurrection. And so it is then reasonable to conclude that John 2022 refers to the regeneration or the spiritual birth and renewal by the Holy Spirit because of the phrase he breathed on them. So the Greek word for breathe is the same verb that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 2, 7, where it says God breathed into his, and that would be Adam's nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Right? And it's the same verb found in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 9, which says, Breathe into these slain that they may live. That's Ezekiel's vision of a valley full of dry bones. 
So John's use of this verb, which also related, related also to the likening process, in as in these other references, suggests that Jesus was giving the Holy Spirit in order to bring new life and a new creation that comes from Second Corinthians five seventeen. That's what that quotation is from. So, just as God breathed the breath of life into the first man's physical body, and the man became a living being, as Genesis 2, 7, a new creation, in other words, so Jesus breathed on the disciples, and they each became a new creation in a physical sense. So, through his resurrection, Jesus then became a life-giving spirit that comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 45. So now let's deal with the phrase, receive the Holy Spirit. So that phrase indicates or shows that the spirit at that historical moment and the disciples and begin to live in and through them. So the verb form of for receive, for the verb to receive, it is used there, right? It says receive is aorist imperative, which implies a single, immediate act of receiving. Something that definitively happened at that point in time. So you see, the Holy Spirit was given to renew the disciples spiritually, giving them new birth into a personal relationship with Christ. This receiving of new life from the Spirit was a prerequisite to their receiving the authority of Jesus and their baptism in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So what we see is that prior to this time, the disciples were technically true believers and followers of Jesus, and were saved according to the provision of the Old Covenant. In other words, that's the Old Covenant, right? That's the covenant that said you had to keep making animal sacrifices over and over and over again to receive forgiveness for their sins, right? So that's what they were saying. Yet they were not regenerated into the full new covenant. So it was not until this point in John chapter 20 that the disciples entered into the new covenant, the new life agreement, based on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So it was also true, also technically true at this point in time. Well, excuse me, it was also technically at this point in time, and not at Pentecost, that the church, which is the community of all true believers of Jesus, was born. You see, the church was born here, and Jesus said, when Jesus breathed on his disciples, I think it says, what does it say, um, 
Bible says, and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you forgive them, they are not forgiven. So it's at that point in time that the church is born, not at Pentecost, because you see the spiritual birth of the first disciples and the birth of the church are one and the same. As you see, the church is not a building, right? It's not the place where a bunch of people meet. The church is the people that inhabit that building. The church can meet anywhere. You can have church in your home if there are two or three of y'all gathered together, because that's what makes the church. The church is made up of the people of God. It's not the building where the people of God meet. It's the people that inhabit that building. So, this passage is critical in understanding the Holy Spirit's ministry to God's people. So, these two statements I'm not ready to read you are true, right? So, the disciples did receive the Holy Spirit before the day of Pentecost. They didn't receive it first on the day of Pentecost. They received it before the day of Pentecost. So, the out pouring of the Spirit, then in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, when God generously sent His, God generously, excuse me, sent His Spirit to fill, commission, and empower His first followers, was an experience that occurred after the disciples had already been spiritually renewed by the Spirit. For this reason, then, their baptism in the Spirit at Pentecost is considered a second and separate work of the Spirit that takes place in them. So it's these two separate and distinct works of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Jesus' disciples that can and should be the norm for all of us who claim to be followers of Christ to this day. Because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is available to give supernatural power to all who have already received spiritual salvation. You see, all believers receive the Holy Spirit at the time of their spiritual birth, which is when they first accept God's gift of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Christ. After this, after that moment in time is when they can and they should experience the baptism in the Holy Spirit for supernatural power to be Jesus' witnesses and to spread his message. So, again, there is no biblical basis for believing or understanding that Jesus' words receive the Holy Spirit as recorded in John chapter 20 verse 22 were only symbolic and prophetic of the Holy Spirit's coming at Pentecost as described in Acts chapter 2. The use of the imperious comparative form of except the verb receive suggests that the disciples received the Holy Spirit at that moment and in that place, just as John records 
the events in his gospel. So now let's pick up in verse 24 and go through the end, actually go through verse 29, which says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which by the way means twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the others excuse me, so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. You see, Jesus' encounter with Thomas is unique to John's Gospel. It occurred a week after the resurrection. You see, Thomas was not with the other disciples on Sunday. Where was it? I don't know. We're not told where he was. He wasn't in the same place hiding with the other disciples. Don't know where he was. Just see, he came back to wherever they were gathered together the week after Jesus had been risen from the dead. So he was there with them on the Sunday after Easter, first Easter Sunday. And Jesus comes and he appears to them again, you see, Tom, because you see, his fellow disciples had told him that the Lord had appeared to them, that Jesus had appeared to them. But you see, Thomas refused to believe unless he saw physical proof that Jesus had come back from the dead. And then what do we see? What do we see now? We see Jesus again suddenly appear hearing, yet the disciples missed. And see, he greeted them <clears throat> for a third time using the normal Hebrew greeting of Shalom, or peace to you, or peace be with you, or peace my friends, peace my brothers. Whatever way you want to translate it, that's how Jesus greeted them again. And we also see that he graciously confronted Thomas's doubts. He told Thomas, hey, you see the scars I got? Put your hands on them, touch them, stick your fingers in my side. Stick your fingers in the nail holes in my wrist. Stick your fingers in the nail holes in my feet or my ankles, wherever they might have been. I don't know exactly what they might have been. 
sure even by now John is a little bit fuzzy on that, right? But it does record that Jesus tells Thomas to physically touch his the scars that Jesus had received from crucifixion. And then he challenged Thomas to stop believing and instead to believe. And it was only after Thomas had placed his hands literally into the wounds that Jesus had received while hanging on that cross and dying for him that Thomas came to believe that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead. And what we're going to see that Thomas didn't only believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, Thomas believed that Jesus was his Lord and that Jesus was his God. You see, he declared him to be his, to be divine. He declared Jesus to be divine. He said, my Lord and my God. And there is no greater confession in John's gospel than for Thomas who was skeptical about this whole thing and Jesus comes to him and he says hey see where I've been wounded for you put your hands in the wounds that I received for you and it was after Thomas did this after Thomas had had his doubts dealt Finally able to see past what his Jewishly educated brain was telling him could not be possible. So those of us who do not have the opportunity Thomas did to see the resurrected Jesus and to physically put our hands into his side, to physically stick our fingers into the holes that the nails left in his wrists and in his feet or ankles. But we do have the certain words of Scripture, and the Holy Spirit uses the Scriptures to bring about faith for those of us who believe without seeing because you see our thing is stronger than that of Thomas because Jesus says blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed we've not seen the nail scarred hands of Jesus we've not seen the nail scarred feet of Jesus we've not seen the spear pierced side of Jesus. We've only seen the Holy Spirit inspired words that have been written by many men who were flawed, but yet their flaws were used to give us an account of what happened so that we may read it. The Holy Spirit may work through our reading it so that we can come to believe without ever having seen the resurrected body of Jesus. 
we know that the tomb he was supposed to, the tomb he was buried in is empty, right? Because the historical tomb for Jesus is located in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And we all know that there ain't no body in that tomb. Ain't no body in the tomb that's located in the basement of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Ain't no body there. And so now let's pick up in John chapter 20, verse 30, and take it through the very end of this section, which would be 31. And it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we see chapter 20 conclude with a description of the above John's purpose in writing his gospel. John goes on to indicate the selected nature of what he has included. So out of all the miracles that John saw Jesus perform in the three years that he walked with him, as a disciple, John only chooses to record seven of them. He calls these seven miracles seven signs. And his purpose in doing this is so that his readers, so that us and his readers in the first century, and his readers throughout history, will believe Jesus to be both the Messiah and the Son of God, and then experience abundant life in His name. But you see, that's not how John's Gospel ends. John gospel, John's Gospel ends with a with scene on the shores of the Lake of Galilee. It ends with a scene on the Lake of Galilee. We see Jesus' disciples go back to fishing. Then we see Jesus reinstate Peter or restore Peter. And so we're going to pick up from, from with that when we get into chapter 21 of John's Gospel, which is the very last chapter. And in order for you to be prepared for that, getting to read 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Through 18, verse 12, Acts chapter 20, Psalm 148, 1 through 14, and Proverbs 18, verses 6 through 7. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to our daily devotional for June the 30th. So if you will recall, our daily devotionals are divided into two distinct segments. We have our first of the day segment, and we have our through the Bible in one year segment. So our first of the day for June the 30th comes from Galatians 5, 16, where it says, Walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So to get a little bit of background to that, I'm going to back up all the way to Galatians 5, this is verse 13, and we're going to read through verse 18. So here's what that says. It says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you, don't, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So we see here that Paul has declared that Christ has called believers into freedom. And now he clarifies that this freedom that he, that Christ has called us into, is not intended as an excuse for sinful behavior. Instead, we as believers are to serve or to be a slave to one another. Paul here presents a startling paradox, and that paradox is that freedom is given to those of us that are followers of Christ, so that we may be slaves to each other. Jesus set us free, not so that we can do whatever our sinful and wicked hearts desire. He has set us free so that we can serve others and do what is best for others, not just for ourselves. And so the theme of Christians living in love is something that should by now be is by now you should know says prevalent throughout the writings of the Apostle Paul's. And the reason that this theme of Christians living in love is so prevalent and is so important for a Christian ethic is stated clearly in Galatians fifteen fourteen. Right? And that's love fulfills the end entire law. So, Paul here is not contradicting his previous teaching about the law, and we're going to get into this really, really, really in-depth when we get to the book of Galatians and Arthur the Bible in one year segment. So, hold your horses on that, because you're going to really like it when we get into this. I think you will. In fact, I know you will. You're really, really going to open your eyes on some stuff. Right. So, previously, right, Paul had warned the Galatians that if they submitted to 
emphasizing the freedom the Galatians have that should express itself in love by serving others. Again, that's this whole thing that we work set free to just go back and keep reindulging our sinful and wicked hearts. Because you see, even though have been set free, and we've been liberated, even though we receive Christ, we become followers of Christ, even though we have said we want to turn our back onto it, we're still humans, and we're still a fallen creature that's gonna go back to sinning, because it's in our very nature. So we have to work at keeping ourselves in that freedom so we don't go back to living the life of sin so that we can then help others to not live a life of sin either. So we think is that Paul references the flesh in verse 13. But now, but now, he contrasts the power of the flesh and the spirit. So what are we talking about there, right? So this first part, right, we were talking about, took us up to the, uh, to the end of the section that says, If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by the spirit. So now here's what Paul says. He says, I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh? They're in conflict with each other, so that they are, so that, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So you see, he's just contrast the power of the flesh and the Spirit. And what we see is that this little small section. Galatians 5 clarifies the meaning of being called to freedom and living in love. So you see, when those of us who are followers of Christ walk by the Spirit, we will have victory over our flesh, we'll have victory over the sinful desires of our sinful flesh. Should understand is that being led by the Spirit leads to the truth, and because it leads to the truth, there is no threat from the law. And so, what you need to read for June the 30th is Second Kings chapter 17, verse 1 through 18, verse 12, Acts chapter. 20, Psalm 148 1-14, and Proverbs 18, verses 6 through 7. So now it is time to move into our through the Bible in one year. Move into the to the to our through the Bible in one year segment for June the 30th. So this is day 181 of this particular segment. Again, if you have missed any of these segments, 
because you just want to read some interesting things and you just want to get caught up on everything, you can do so by visiting upstatechristian.com. So our focus for day 181, which will be June the 30th, is on John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. So we have now come after this long journey through the Gospel of John to the final chapter of God's, John's Gospel. So we have now covered all four of the Gospels. And you see, John's Gospel ends where it began on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. You see, this final chapter in John's Gospel has four purposes. It has the purpose to describe the miraculous catch of fish. It has the purpose to recount. It has three purposes, excuse me. Uh, uh, so the first one is to describe the miraculous catch of fish that we see in these first 14 verses. It has the purpose to recount Jesus' forgiveness of Peter. And it has the purpose to provide an affirmation of the truthfulness of the Gospel's witness. So let's pick up now in, verse, in chapter 21, verse 1, and go through verse 3 to start off with. Here's what that section says. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana, <coughs> Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which would be James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, We will we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So verse 1 of chapter 21, which is the verse that says afterwards, afterwards it disappeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, right? That verse sets up the only resurrection appearance in the Gospel of John that takes place in Galilee, in Jesus' hometown, and in the hometown of his core group of his twelve disciples. And because, and it is unique to John's gospel, right? No other, none of the other three gospels ever mention that Jesus appeared to a group of disciples that had gone back to fishing on the Sea of Galilee, which is what this core group of disciples that we see here that Simon Peter was a fisherman. We know that Nathaniel was more than likely a fisherman. We know that James 
John were fishermen, and so the other two disciples that went with them had to have been <coughs> fishermen also. And if Thomas went with them, he was probably a fisherman too. So there is no way to know based on the way this is written how long after the events in chapter 21 that this encounter occurred. So we don't know what the time frame is. We do know that Jesus was on the earth for about 40 days after his resurrection. <coughs> Before he ascended back into heaven. So we don't know the time frame. We don't know if this was a week. Don't know if it was a month later. We don't know any of that. But what we do know is that seven of the remaining eleven disciples were present on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So in other words, seven of Jesus' remaining eleven disciples decided, hey, we don't know what's going on. We're gonna go back to what we had done before. We're gonna go back to fishing. We know fishing, so we can go back to it. We don't know what has happened. We're not entirely sure <clears throat> when this Holy Spirit is gonna come that Jesus said is gonna come. We don't know when all of this is gonna happen. We don't know how it's all gonna happen. So until it does happen, we're going to go back to doing what we know best. We're going to go back to fishing. That's how we make our living. So that's what we're going to go back in. That is what we are going to do. So I hope we should notice that John himself was one of the seven. So it's quite possible that Matthew does not recount it because Matthew was not one of the seven that was there. Mark probably does not record this because Mark is getting his information from the same source as Matthew. So Matthew is giving him large chunks of his source with a little bit of help from Peter. So Peter is probably not going to tell this. Why? Because it doesn't really put Peter in a good light for Peter to say, Hey, I don't want to deny Jesus, but after he breathed the Holy Spirit on me, I decided I was going to go back and fish. And I took six more of Jesus' closest friends with me to go and do this. <coughs> It's not necessary, we shouldn't really necessarily understand that Peter's decision to go back into fishing in a negative light. We're not saying that Peter, so it doesn't say that Peter completely turned his back on God and said, I'm done with this, I'm out, I'm gonna go back to fishing, which is what he knew best. But what it does say is that he says, hey, I'm going to go out to fish. So whether he was going out to fish for money or going out to fish for pleasure, either way, Peter said, 
I'm going to go back to what I was doing before. Maybe not professionally, but I'm going to go back. Maybe this was a way for Peter to clear his mind. Don't know for sure. We will never know, because we are Peter. That's all something only Peter and God can deal with. And when you get to have the time to get to heaven, we ain't going to want to ask Peter, Hey, Peter, why'd you decide to go back to fishing? That seemed like a really dumb idea. We're not going to say that when we get to heaven, because we're going to have too much other stuff to be doing. We're going to be too busy worshiping Jesus to ask dumb, stupid questions like that just to satisfy our own curiosity. Because by that point in time, it ain't really going to matter. Why Peter did something that appeared to be so dumb now as to go back to fishing. So the result of this late night fishing expedition was the same as that of the all night fishing excursion that we see recorded in Luke's Gospels. That's Luke 5 4, which is the one where Peter, James, and John have been out fishing all night right before Jesus called them to be his disciples. And then Peter then Jesus gets into their boat and he tells them to put back out onto the lake so that he could teach and after he was done teaching he tells them hey a lynch nets back down you're gonna catch a whole bunch of fish and they say no no we've been fishing all night and we caught nothing Jesus tells them let your nets down and they say okay they let the nets down and the haul is so great that it almost capsized the boat Peter was in but it also not only tried to capsize his boat, but tried to capsize the boat capsize the boat that James and John were in. So what we need to understand here is this wasn't necessarily there wasn't necessarily anything nefarious going on here. Night was just the perfect time for fishing. Because it enabled the fishermen to escape the heat of the day and then to sell their catch in the morning. And most importantly, the fish bite better at night because the fish are going to come up to the surface of the water at night because it's going to be a little bit warm up there and not as cold down at the bottom. They're going to stay down where it's cold during the day because they don't want to come up to the heat and get caught in the heat and possibly die. So now let's move on to verse, pick up in verse 4 and go through verse 8. It says, early in the morning Jesus stood on the, stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciple followed in the boat, 
towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. So as dawn broke, as the new day is beginning, the disciples see a stranger on the shore, right? And this stranger highlights the fact that the disciples had caught absolutely no fish. See, initially, these men who had walked with Jesus for three years, who had lived in close proximity with Jesus for three years, did not recognize the man standing on the shore about a hundred yards away from them as being Jesus. That could be these red they was also blind, they couldn't recognize the man they had lived in close proximity with for three years from a hundred yards away. Probably not. The reason they didn't recognize him was because Jesus would look completely totally different. The last time they had seen him outside of his other resurrection appearances, he had been beaten bloody. He had been left bloody, battered, and dead by the brutal execution style of Roman crucifixion. Now they see this man standing on the shore about 100 yards away from them, and they don't recognize it as Jesus. Jesus wasn't trying to hide his identity. They just didn't recognize him, because Jesus, Jesus was in his heavenly body. He was in his resurrected body. He was in his full glory by this point in time. So we see that Jesus gives them an instruction to cast the net on the right side of the boat, which was similar to what he had told them a few years before over in Luke's gospel when he told them to do the exact same thing. And this is probably what made John realize, hmm, this is Jesus. This is the Lord. John then tells Peter, Hey, 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 that dude that's standing off on the shore about a hundred yards away from us, he's Jesus. That's Jesus. He's gonna appear to us again. So what happens next is that Peter puts on his outer garments. He puts on the clothing that he's taken off so that he can fish more comfortably, so that he can fish better. And he jumps into the water and he swims to shore. He swims the hundred yards to shore faster than James and John and the other four that are in the boat can row that boat back to shore. Why did it take them so dang long to row that boat back to shore? Because it was a hundred yards. But it was because this net was so full of fish that it took them then. <coughs> <coughs> because this net was so full of fish that it was probably on the verge of capsizing and sinking this boat. So now let's come, now let's pick up there from verse 9 and finish this 
section, go to verse 14. Wait, it says Jesus, uh, excuse me, when they landed, they saw fire burning, the fire of coal, burning coals there, with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have cooked. Bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. Not hard than 53, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. And did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So you see, the disciples arrived back on the shore. They arrived back on the shore after having rowed this boat a hundred yards, hauling a net full of fish. It probably made it very difficult for them to row a few feet, much less a hundred yards. See, Peter had already arrived back there, right? Because he jumped in the water and he swam back to Jesus. And so when the other disciples get there, right, they see that Jesus has breakfast ready for them. Right? They found that he was preparing them breakfast. He was cooking them a breakfast. What kind of breakfast? It was probably fish. So Jesus is cooking them a fish breakfast. He's fixing them a beach breakfast. And so Jesus then invites these disciples to contribute to the meal by telling them to bring some of the fish you caught. So the number of fish was 153. That may not sound like a whole lot to you, but that's quite a lot of fish to be hauling in a small boat in a lake for about 100 yards that you have the power by an oar or quite possibly a sail, more than likely an oar. So that's a whole lot of fish that have to be hauling behind you or to haul up into your boat and hope when you drop that many fish into your boat that you don't sink your boat. So this catch was truly miraculous in that sense. And what we also see here is that this was Jesus' third appearance to his disciples after his death and his resurrection, which, by the way, is not including his appearance to Mary Magdalene. So then, what is John's whole point? Whole purpose in recounting this story. So it may very well have been nothing more than to set the 
restoration of Peter. However, however, that's not the only purpose that it may have served. The purpose it may have served, but the encounter may have reminded some of Jesus' disciples that when they first met Jesus on the on these very same shores, on the very same shores they were standing on, maybe not the exact spot they were standing on now, but on that exact same shoreline. That Jesus had called them to be fishers of people, to be fishers of men. He told them, come, I will make you fishers of men. You see, they weren't to go back to just fishing for fish. They were now to be fishers of men. And so we will pick up from there tomorrow when we deal with Jesus' restoration of Peter, which is crucial because, you see, Peter's going to play a huge role in the events that are described in the book of Acts. And so in order for you to be prepared for that discussion, here's what you need to read. You need to read 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13 through 19, verse 37, Psalm 21, Psalm, uh, no, Acts 21, 1 through 17, Psalm 149, 1 through 9, and Proverbs 18, verse 